Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Good morning, guys. It's good to be with you. It's good to be back in the block, isn't it? Like he said, March 12th, so it's been 13 months. Isn't that crazy? And we're finally back here. A little sense of normalcy, a little sense of routine, which feels nice. I can relate to that. Last summer, uh, our youngest at the time was about six months old, and so he was finally transitioning out of sleeping in our bedroom, moving upstairs to the nursery which meant we could get back to normal and we could have our bedroom back. I could start setting a bunch of loud, annoying alarms to try to get up early again. And I needed to do that because what had happened was uh, I had been eating a lot. So like when the lockdown originally happened, like I'm sure a lot of you, what started off as like a well-intended approach to supporting local businesses, we started just ordering tons of food all the time to be delivered to the house, and that quickly turned into just a pursuit of convenience. And so you go an extended period of time of not working out and eating a bunch, and you find yourselves at the crossroads I was in last summer of, do I buy bigger pants or do I make some changes? And so I opted for, thankfully, make some changes. And so I started getting up early, started getting on the treadmill, changed up my diet. And when I got on the treadmill, it initially started off uh, as walking. That turned into jogging, into running. But, of course, I didn't really tell anybody about much any of that until I built up to a a pace that I felt like was respectable. Something, you know, based on prior seasons of running that I could kind of brag a little bit about. So I waited till I'd lost some weight and a couple buddies had noticed and they were like, hey, man, what have you been up to? You've been running? Yeah. Well, how far you run? Well, this morning I ran, you know, five miles and 40 minutes. Oh, an eight-minute pace for five miles. That's pretty good. Well, you know, I work out. So like you wait, that's what we do a lot of times, especially as guys, you, you don't brag about when you were walking on the treadmill, you wait till you hit a PR, and then you suddenly let it show that like, yeah, you know, that's what I do. Like, I'm not going to brag about the other times, right? And so once I got to that point that I was feeling pretty good on myself, I, I, I decided now I'm going to go big leagues. I reached out to my sister-in-law because she's an actual runner, like she ran in college, she's run the Boston, she qualified for Ironman Worlds, like she's fit. So I tell her about my, my running experience because I'm like, man, if I get praised here, now I've really made it. And so I, I, I share my split times with her, and uh, the feedback comes back at first very encouraging, and I'm like, all right. And then she follows up her praise immediately with this question, hey, what was your average heart rate on that run? I'm like, my average heart rate? I don't know, didn't you hear about how fast I was going? Like, no, no, no. Your average heart rate tells a better story. It really tells if you're fit or not. So, like, you need to know what your heart rate is. I'm like, well, when I get off the treadmill, I feel like my heart's going to explode, and this thing on my wrist says it's pretty high, but it's probably not accurate. So I buy one of those chest straps. I log a few runs. I share those results with her. They are horrible, like terrible. And she's like, bro, you've got to fix this. If you're a, a car guy, basically I had it in first gear just pinning it for, like, four, five, six, seven miles at a time. Just terrible. And she's like, that's not sustainable. That's not healthy. You're going to get worn out. You're going to get injured. You've got to fix that. You went straight to speed, and you didn't do your base training. you got to build up your cardio engine before you go for speed. I'm like, okay. 
so how do I fix this? She says, well, you got to slow down. Okay, how much? Well, I mean, at least a few minutes per mile. I'm like, so I've been bragging to people about holding an eight-minute pace. Well, now i got to go 10-minute? She's like, well, probably more like 11 or 12. I'm like, 11 or 12? That's like half the speed. And she's like, yeah, well, that's what you need to do. I'm like, okay, how long do I have to do this? She said, I can double-check with my running coach. Yes, she has a running coach. Uh, but probably like 12 to 16 weeks. And I'm like, three to four months of this? Like, that's how long it took me to get to this point. And now you're saying I have to start over. She's like, yeah, well, of course I don't believe her. So I do a little research. She's right. So I slow down. I get a couple weeks into this deal. And I'm just feeling discouraged. Dudes are like, hey, man, you still running? I'm like, kind of, sort of. I don't want to talk about it. Yes. Anyways. So, like, one morning, I'm on the treadmill. It's like 5.30, and I'm, I'm praying out loud, which is easy to do when you're going half speed. And I'm just being such a baby. I'm just saying, Lord, I'm so discouraged. Like, get me through this season. You say that the sufferings of this present life aren't worth comparing, and I'm just being a baby. And, and the clouds didn't part, and I didn't hear an audible voice, but about as plain as day, I felt like the response came right back. Sam, you're not running for speed. You're training your heart. You're training your heart. And heart training isn't real glamorous. It's not a lot of fun. We don't usually brag about that. But it's the better thing because the heart tells the story of what kind of shape we're in. Heart training. So if you've, if you've been with us for the past month, the past five weeks, we have been doing some serious heart training with Jesus. We've been in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's referred to as the inauguration address of the kingdom of God. It's the most famous sermon ever preached. It's recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And we've just been walking through that with Jesus. He, he, he sees these crowds gather. He goes up on this mountain. And his disciples come near and he starts teaching. And he starts off by saying, here's the characteristics of people who are elevated in my kingdom. They're humble. They're peacemakers. And then, and then he talks about people with those characteristics, the kind of impact they both can and should have on the society around them, and he uses this imagery of salt and light. And then from there, we do some real heart training with Jesus, and we have some real uncomfortable moments, and he, he walks through things like lust, and anger, divorce, loving our enemies. And no matter what the topic is or the specific application, Jesus is consistently, primarily focused on the heart behind the behavior. And so this week, we get into chapter 6 of the Gospel of Matthew. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus is going to narrow his focus to a specific type of behavior, but catch this, he's still primarily concerned with the heart behind it all. So today, we're going to do some more heart training with Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, or if you use the Bible app, open up to that. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1, where Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Beware of practicing your righteousness. So that's a phrase that doesn't really ring well for us. But essentially, like, for us, that would probably be something like going to church, reading your Bible. That would be religious or pious activities, Beware of practicing your righteousness. In Jesus' day for the Jews, there was kind of three main ones that were the, the most prestigious or the most favorable, and that was giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. So for this week, we're going to take the first two, 
And then next week, Kurt Souter is going to lead us through the section on the Lord's Prayer and then fasting. But Jesus says, beware of doing those things in front of people and then catch this in order to be seen by them. So that's a conditional clause. Jesus isn't simply saying, don't do those things in front of people. He says, don't beware of doing it in front of people in order to be seen by them. So this one verse really functions as the principle for this whole passage in the weeks to come. So we need to sit here and kind of soak in this to catch what Jesus' intent is, as then he'll turn to specific behaviors. Beware of doing those things. Beware of going to church just to be seen by other people. See, when we practice our righteousness in front of other people in order to get their praise, it's an end in and of itself. The best thing you're going to get is the praise of man. Like, when I brag to you about how fast I run, which for you runners, it's not that fast. The best thing I'm going to get is some praise from a couple guys, and it's short-lived. But, as Jesus kind of implies here, the better thing would be to do it, not for the praise of man, but to the glory of God. And so, kind of this principle I want you guys to catch, if you're taking notes, this is kind of the main principle we're going to see come up over and over, is that the pursuit of public praise is fueled by pride. The pursuit of public praise is fueled by pride. And in Galatians, Paul says it well that we shouldn't be concerned with pleasing man. We should be primarily concerned with pleasing God. See, I like things black and white. I want Jesus to tell me what to do and what not to do. But he kind of goes in this, this, this alley, this gray lane where he says, hey, don't do those things if your heart is on the wrong thing. Well, that's kind of complicated, right? Well, thankfully, God is the one who judges the heart. Ronnie quoted 1 Samuel 16 a few weeks ago. So it's a matter of the condition of our heart when we do these things. So regularly as Christians, we're going to have to pause and ask, what is my motive, what is my heart in this moment? So that's kind of our principle. We're going to watch how then that gets applied in this text. But before we move on, catch this, the last part of verse 1. says, if you do it here for the wrong end or with the wrong motive, then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So, of course, I would like to know what is the reward. Like, what am I playing for? What's the prize money? Well, Jesus is a little vague here. He doesn't tell us. He leaves it kind of wide open. So we're going to keep revisiting that as we walk through this passage, and I think we'll gain some, some clarity as we do. But again, behind the pursuit of public praise is pride. So let's see how that fleshes out. So we're going to look next in the section, uh, verses 2 through 4, and you can, again, if you're taking notes, this would be application number one. This is giving. So in Matthew 6, 2, Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So in verse 2, that sound no trumpet before you, there's debate and conjecture on this from different scholars as to that was something literal, maybe that the Pharisees would have some trumpeter go before them and make a big show before they would give to the poor. Or maybe that referred to the shape of the offering boxes being horn-shaped. Who knows? I think if, if, we, if we use some modern-day language for this, Jesus is saying, you don't need to go around tooting your own horn when you give to the needy. Like, plainly, you, you, you don't have to snap a selfie and you don't have to post a tweet about how generous you are when you give to the needy. 
Now, I'm not saying we should never use our social media platforms to, to talk about and bring attention to the Christian walk. Absolutely, we should. But again, Jesus is talking about a specific heart, a specific motive here. If your intent is just to get the praise of man, he says, do you know who does that? Hypocrites. That's a word I think we are pretty comfortable with. We're happy to throw that word around. And so like in preparing for this, I wanted to look at the original language to see if maybe there's some kind of new insight I can glean on that word. And the word for hypocrite most directly translates under judge, which for me is not real helpful. But it, it, it's a theatrical term. It's like an actor under a mask playing a role, a two-faced person, someone whose profession doesn't match up with their practice, someone who's pretending. And Jesus says, do you know who has to go around tooting their own horn when, when they're generous? Hypocrites. So don't do it like that. And again, we see behind the pursuit of public praise is a whole lot of pride. And from the Old Testament all the way through the New, we're told God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And again, remember how the Sermon on the Mount opened. Jesus starts by saying, you want to know what, what kind of behavior, what kind of person, what kind of characteristics are elevated in my kingdom? Humble, humility, peacemakers. And so as we look at this, Jesus says, here's the wrong intent and the wrong way to do this. That's what the hypocrites do. Verse three, but when you give to the needy, notice he doesn't say, but if you give, or if you ever happened to be in a situation where you might have to give something to somebody, Jesus, again, is speaking to his disciples. He says, but when you give. So, if you're taking notes, observation number one, Jesus expects his followers to regularly give to the needy. Jesus expects his disciples, his followers, to regularly give to the needy. And I think we can really even clarify that further based on this text. Jesus expects his disciples to regularly give to the needy in such a way that God alone is glorified. So if, if, if that's the goal, how do we do it? Jesus goes on to say, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Okay, so to do it right, we have to do it in secret. So we're going to see this a few times, and this is always a temptation uh, when it comes to the Word of God. It's been done this way for a long time, and it'll continue to be this way. But it is a temptation to, to extract a piece of a verse, sometimes a whole verse, out of its context, stretch it out, and make a whole practice out of it. So an extreme way to look at what Jesus said there would be to say, well, all my giving should always be in secret. And when we break in a few minutes and go to our tables, we can't talk about anything we've ever done or you'll nullify the gift. Everything has to be a secret. It has to be anonymous. We can't do that. But that, that plainly doesn't jive with the rest of Scripture. And it certainly doesn't jive with the rest of even Jesus' sermon here in the Mount. Remember back our second week in this, Burke led us through in chapter 5, verse 16. It says, Let your light shine before others in order that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, that feels like a contradiction, right? So Jesus says, do it in front of people. Then he says, never do it in front of people. So in humility, I have to think that God in the flesh is smart enough to not contradict himself in the course of talking for like five minutes. So again, as you pause and reflect, the context, the, the specific motive Jesus is teaching against is, if you're seeking the praise of others, in that specific example, you should go do it in secret. 
Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So again, plainly, that would be hard. I mean, I was going to say it would be hard to write a check blindfolded and hand it out, but I guess instantly I'm thinking you could, I guess, carry around a bag of cash and close your eyes and hand it out. But I think metaphorically what Jesus is saying is, if you're handing a $20 bill to a homeless guy to light, you don't have to snap a selfie to let everybody know how generous you are. If you're doing that, probably your heart is in the wrong place. And so again and again and again in the Christian walk, we have to pause and reflect and ask, what is my motive? We got to check our heart. And you want to know a really good way to check your heart, Jesus is saying, is secret giving. Like, go give secretly and then try not to tell anybody about it. I'm speaking from personal experience, man. You will look for every excuse in the world to bring it up in the most random conversations just to let people know how good you are. Or maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that's corrupt. But like you'll try to find every excuse to tell people about how holy you are. Yeah, I got up at 6 o'clock and did this man challenge thing. I'm so tired, but I'm a pretty good Christian. And again, not to say we should never tell people. We should share our walk with others, but it's a matter of the heart. So check your motive. What is your heart? Secret giving is almost like an EKG. Maybe you've had some heart scares and you've had one of those. One of the deals that shows the, the heartbeat kind of deal, the firings of the heart. If you want a good test for your heart, try giving in secret. Try running on a treadmill and not bragging about it to anybody. The last part of this section, though, Jesus talks about that reward again. He says, that's the wrong way to do it, how the hypocrites do it. When you do it, do it this way. And then your father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, in talking about how we have a temptation to go to an extreme, man, if we pull that out of context, I can feel like Jesus is saying, you've got to earn it. You've got to earn your way in. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Don't do it that way or you're not getting in and you're never going to get paradise. But again, remember the, the whole context of this is Jesus didn't take applications for his discipleship program. Dudes are just fishing, and he walks up and says, hey, come follow me. Just in grace, he chooses us. And so there's nothing to brag about on our part when we're chosen by grace. That's what Paul makes the point of in Ephesians 2, that the whole point that it's great by grace through faith alone is that I have no grounds for boasting. Also, Ben said it well a couple weeks ago that in the Sermon on the Mount, this is not a list of do's and don'ts in order to get into the kingdom. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. They're already in because he invited them in. But he's saying, now that you are my follower, here's how to best enjoy kingdom life. Here's how best to represent me in this world, to live this way. So that's application number one, giving. As we keep moving in the text, we're going to see another application. Application number two would be prayer. So this is going to be verses five and six. Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So in very similar format as just the last application, we see Jesus sets up this juxtaposition of, here's the wrong way to do it. Here's how a hypocrite does it. Don't be a poser. Don't be a fake. Be authentic. Have your heart in alignment with what you're doing for the right purposes. 
Here's how not to do it. But when you pray, again, we can make another observation here. But when you pray, go into your room. So Jesus expects his followers to have a private prayer life with their Heavenly Father. Jesus expects his followers to have a private prayer life with their Heavenly Father. So again, we could take that to the extreme and say every prayer should be private. You do your religion over there, I do mine over here. And that would sell really well in our culture today. But we, when we break and go to our tables, we shouldn't pray out loud. Jay shouldn't have prayed from stage. We should always pray in secret. You keep yours to you, I keep mine to me. But again, that doesn't fit with the teaching of Jesus or the whole of Scripture. The easiest way to see that is if you keep reading, the very next section is the Lord's Prayer, which is all written in the plural. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. It's a communal prayer. It's a group prayer. So just plainly, Jesus is showing there's different ways to pray. So again, we have to remember Jesus saying, if your temptation is to pray in front of people because you're eloquent, because you're good at it, and you're going to do it so that they praise you, you need to check your heart. And more than just inferring that from Jesus' teaching, Jesus modeled this. Like examples abound through Scripture of Jesus going off early in the morning, in the dark, climbing a mountain by himself to spend time in private prayer. And he's not formulaic about it, that it has to be every morning. Sometimes he would pray before a miracle. Sometimes he would pray right after. He would spend time in prayer right before a big decision, like calling the twelve. And so it seems to me that private prayer is an important piece of the Christian walk. But again, we always have to ask, what is my motive? And check my heart. And I think, again, a really good litmus test for our heart is private prayer. I said an EKG, how about an echocardiogram? I'm getting all medical today. That's the one that kind of shows the pumpings or the functioning of your heart. If you want to know if you're pumped to spend time talking to your dad, go do it in secret. Like get up early in the next week, set an alarm, go spend 15, 30 minutes on your face in the closet and a a guest bedroom in your basement and then don't tell anybody about it. And see what he does to your heart, what he reveals in your heart. I can tell you, man, from personal experience, you'll find every excuse in the world to try to tell people. You know, I spent 45 minutes on my face this morning. Feet went to sleep. It was terrible, but so, so righteous. Like, it is, it is crazy how, by nature, how corrupt our heart is. But I'm telling you, if you'll spend time alone with your father, he'll reveal things in your heart that need to be more in alignment with him. And I can tell you from personal experience, the best times I've ever had with my dad has been in secret. It's been in private. But we regularly have to check our heart. So again, catch this. Jesus again in verse 6 says, But when you pray, here's how you should do it. Do it in secret so that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So that idea of reward, here we are the third time. Verses 1, 3, and 6, Jesus promises this reward, yet has never told us what the actual reward is. But consistently in each of those examples, verses 1, 3, and 6, there's a key word I would love for you guys to catch, and that is Father. God as Father was not a central theme in the Old Testament. And Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount is teaching a large crowd of Jews. And so the scriptures they grew up on God was referred to and kind of depicted as a father compared to, but he wasn't spoken to as daddy until Jesus came along. 
And so it's interesting, in our Bibles, in the, in the New Testament, uh, arrangement-wise, Matthew is first. And leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, in the first four chapters of Matthew, the word for father is used four times. And it describes three people. Herod, Abraham, and a dude named Zebedee, who was James and John's dad. It's not used to describe God until Jesus does it in the Sermon on the Mount, in the verse we've already quoted, Matthew 5, 16, where he says... Let your light shine before others in order that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So I think in the Sermon on the Mount, more than just it serving as an invitation for us to come and be citizens in the kingdom of God, I think the, the reward, what the idea that Jesus keeps bringing up is that the invitation is more than that. It's, it's to be sons of the King. We were invited to come in and be sons of the king. And Jesus makes a pretty good point about this further in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, where he essentially says, look, God is good, so by comparison, you're evil. And those of you who are dads, you know how to give pretty good gifts to your kids. I mean, realistically. And if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much better can your heavenly father reward his kids? And like I, I told you all when Jay asked, I have two boys who are different ages. And a good gift for one, honestly, would be a pacifier. And if I tried to give that good reward to the other, he would be offended and say, no, nah, I'm a big boy. And so a good dad understands his children are different. And depending on where they are and what situation, the reward is different. So I think... If we keep in mind that no matter what the topic is, Jesus is primarily concerned with the heart behind the behavior. I think when it comes to rewards, he wants, to be, wants us to be primarily concerned with the giver of the reward than the reward itself. You could even argue that God himself is the reward. Like to be sons of the king, that, that would be the reward. What could be better than that? Because the king owns everything. So quickly, let me just say, to the Christians in the room, to the men who profess faith in Jesus, who claim to be a Christian, I would say, if your walk with the Lord is missing these two applications of private giving and secret prayer, brother, put it on your calendar. And I, I don't say that from a place of condemnation or guilt. I'm saying from personal experience, if you want to talk about pouring gasoline, spiritual gasoline on your walk with Jesus, man, pack up a wagon, grab some guys, from your group and go downtown for a couple hours and walk the streets and hand out stuff to homeless guys. You don't have to post about it or tell anybody about it. It will light you on fire. Or get up early and spend some intentional time on your face with him. And I know we have a bunch of type A go-getter guys. I myself like to think I'm like that. And so if you get up early, there's a lot of work to be done, but I'm telling you, shut the door, put your phone aside, and go spend time with your father. I'm telling you, it it, it will light you up and it will be revealing of what's in your heart. Now to the unbeliever in the room or to the guy who's maybe on the fence or if this is your first time in an environment like this, let me just say, this is the invitation of Christianity. Like we don't believe in a distant God who's far off and gives us a list of rules to follow so that we can hope to get life in heaven. That, that's not what this is. We have a loving God who created everything, who has graciously invited us into a relationship with him, not an employer paying an employee a wage, but a father welcoming a son 
into the kingdom. And we know that he's a loving father because he himself put on flesh and came and paid the penalty for our own rebellion by being killed and murdered on a cross and then buried in a tomb. And what we just celebrated this past weekend in Easter is that we believe he walked out of that tomb alive. And Romans 8 says that he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. That is the invitation of Christianity. That is the welcoming. That is the reward. So, kind of in summary, I'm all medical today, talking echoes and EKGs. You know what this is, right, somebody? Stethoscope, can't put it on. Oh, I can. What do you do with this? Listen to the heart. My medical guys are like, what do you listen to? Bowel sounds, breathing sounds. Put that on, and, and you listen to the Sermon on the Mount. If you let this soak in your ears, you know what you're going to hear? The heart of God. Like, if you want to know your father, if you want to know him, you listen to this, and you soak in it, and you keep listening. And it reveals to you what his heart is set on. And kind of conversely, these applications we talked about, giving in secret and praying in secret, if you'll do those things, it will reveal what's in your heart. Some of it to the glory of God, because it'll be some of the best experiences you've ever had. And some of it, it will reveal some serious corruption. Jeremiah 17 essentially says the heart is wicked and corrupt by nature. And so if we'll do that and we'll spend that time, he'll reveal to us what needs to be molded and shaped by him more into conformity of the image of a son. So again, behind the public pursuit of praise is a lot of pride. God opposes the proud. Jesus expects his followers to regularly give to the needy in such a way that he alone, that God alone is glorified. Jesus expects his followers to have a private prayer life with their heavenly father. Some real tangible things we can put into practice as we go to our tables to discuss. But finally, I'll leave you kind of with this promise. Throughout the Old Testament and these these books, prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and then the writer of Hebrews echoes this. We're told that plainly, man, by nature, we are born with a heart of stone. If you, want to, if you wonder why it's so corrupt and why you always have this desire to brag and to look good, it's because by nature we're born that way. But the reward, the promise, is that God will take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He's a God of resurrection, and he'll take what was dead, and he'll make it new and living. He's a creator. So as you go to your tables and we unpack these truths today, I pray that God will work through this to reveal what's here and to shape it into conformity with the image of his son. So let's pray and we'll get to it. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that a sermon preached on a mountain to a large crowd of Jews a couple thousand years ago could be so relevant and active today and convicting today. Um, Your word is live. We thank you for that. Spirit, I pray that uh, for the men in this room who, who need to surrender to you a new area of their life, whether it's in giving or prayer or anywhere else, I pray, Spirit, that you would convict that and that they would be honest and vulnerable with the men in their table today and that they would rally around them and encourage them and walk with them through that. I pray, God, that we as a group of men would prioritize knowing our Father through his word, that we would, in humility, listen to it and be shaped by it and molded by it. And Father, I thank you. Thank you for the gift that you invite us into the kingdom by grace through faith alone. 
that we don't earn our way in, but you give it as a free gift, as a good father gives sons good gifts. So, Father, as we go to our tables uh, and we seek to know you better, I pray that you would enable that and empower that for our good, but ultimately, Lord, for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media. 